0: Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech. Policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul: founders, authors, executives, and other. Thought- Leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized Conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech, Rebooting Society, Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, The Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to slash books at this stage futurist is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org slash sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me, including how to book me for keynote speeches, please go to futurized.org slash store. We'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much Mike welcome to the podcast how are you
1: very well thank you yeah nice and cold here in Cambridge this afternoon
0: that's interesting it's nice and cold uh, I'm uh, on the US East Coast right now it's uh, quite cold here too we've got some uh, first snow of the season so it's interesting every season is different so uh, hot summer cold winter um, you're the expert is that yeah. is that a
1: oh, I've been, yeah I've been studying this uh, ever since I was a boy. You know, I got interested in weather and weather cycles and patterns when I was a teenager. So, yeah, I've had a a long, uh, a long, a long career uh, following the weather. And of course, it led into my early studies into climate change um, way back. Um, But yeah, I just uh, I'm fascinated. I was as a boy, I was fascinated by the weather and uh, I'm I'm still am all these years later.
0: So you're a geographer. I don't know much about uh, your schooling, but uh, so I'd love for you to tell me kind of how your educational path, uh, you know, got you to climate change. I mean, not every geographer studies climate change per se. Is that right? Or am I wrong about that?
1: Uh, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and actually, when I started, I did, you know, geography was my top subject at school and um, it, it, I, it was the obvious... Choice for me to go to university to, to continue my studies in geography, and I think uh, during my uh, <clears throat> I think during my second year I took a course in what geographers called at that time climatology, so the study of climate, the knowledge of climate. Um, and this was brought back in 1980, um, really before public and political concerns about climate change, as we would now call it, uh, existed at all. It was a rather niche topic for a whole bunch of scientists to be looking at in the 1970s. But I just loved the, um, as I mentioned, I I was fascinated by the weather and this whole idea then that climates may have their own rhythms and cycles of change within them is is something that I got really into. Um, I graduated in geography and basically my career has more or less uh, been within the discipline of geography, uh, although I had a whole stretch of time. In the nineteen nineties, and the two thousands, in School of, of Environmental Sciences, but I never, I never lost. I don't think uh, my geographical sensibility, um, and I think the importance of that. Maybe we'll come to that later in the discussion. Is geographers, you know, generally were trained to take a holistic view of the world around us.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I finally found what I was looking for, which was the uh, the um, education section of your CV. Pardon me, but your CV is so long, <laughs> that I had to get to the right section. But of course, you uh, you uh, have a degree of applied climatology, so you did eventually uh, get uh, you know put that label on it. And this was wow. University of Wales, uh, uh, but the study was in Sudan, so you spent some time in Africa as well.
1: Yeah, that, that was the the PhD project, and uh, that introduced me to a different climatic regime. Of course, uh, different climate zone on the southern um, or the northern margins of the Sahara, or the eastern margins, really, actually in Sudan, the Nile Valley. Um, so, a different climate, a different culture as well. Islamic culture, uh, very different livelihoods, basically pastoralism with some irrigated uh, agriculture. So. I think yeah. that PhD, again, is a, it was a good geographers PhD because whilst the focus was on rain, rainfall changes and patterns of rainfall changes in this rather marginal part of, uh, of, of East Africa, Northeast Africa, it, it, it was understanding those, the significance of those changes for people uh, and for livelihoods. And, and this, again, is a theme, a constant theme I keep coming back to is the relationship between, between climate variability and the way in which people live. Um, both economically but, but also culturally, um, and, and how you know, different people in different places around the world, they, they, they tell stories about their weather, they tell stories about their climate, and, and these are cultural narratives which sometimes sit neatly with scientific understanding of climate, but not always. Yeah, I find that paradise.
0: fascinating, and I think uh, it, 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 I think it speaks to something I, I want to talk about in, in a little while here, uh, which is you know that climate may not be everything, but it certainly is a topic that um, yeah, it gets interpreted in, in many different ways, and, and it's important to take those seriously because they say something about what people might be willing to. To do to, to influence it and it also says something i mean not everybody is equally uh, concerned about every aspect of all of this this is partly why there is some controversy uh-huh. um but look i i wanted to jump to a couple of things in your in your professional background so you've spent time at uh, a bunch of universities but you know later in your career you spent uh, a good amount of time at the university of east anglia and I want to talk about that for a second. Then you moved to King's College London, of course, ah. uh, and then after that to the University of Cambridge, where I believe you are now. So that's a a very rich background of various uh, British universities. But the one in East Anglia, you you happen to overlap with some some pretty interesting stuff that happened there, which uh, has been labeled Climate Gate. Uh, I wanted to just briefly cover that because not everybody was part of Climate Gate. It was something that happened around. Two thousand and nine, yeah. and a uh, there was a controversy around some emails that somebody hacked and hacked into, released, and then claimed all oh, these climate scientists and I'm you know are I making this stuff up. They are disagreeing about things. Is there anything real about climate change? It got it got a lot of attention, and arguably, you know, influenced the um, at least the debate around one particular report. By the oh. IPCC that we're going to talk about, um, how did you perceive that?
1: Oh. Yeah, well, I, I'd been at uh, the University of Sanglia for about 20 years. Uh, by that time, this was 2009, and uh, I'd, I'd been in the climate research unit, which um, where most of the scientists' emails originated from, uh, coming in and out or in, in or out of the unit. But by 2009, I'd moved on. I'd set up the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research based at the University of East Anglia. But even then, a couple of years before two thousand and nine, I'd retired from the directorship of that centre, and I was a, an independent professor, free professor in the school. And I was by that stage I was getting very interested, increasingly interested in not just what does the science tell us about climate change and human influences on the climate system. That I mean I'd spent twenty years studying that, but I, I was increasingly interested in how that scientific knowledge is constructed, how is it made, what sort of um, uh, trust does it engender in, in different public audiences? How does that science get mobilized and used, not just in my own political culture, but in different political cultures around the world? Mm. And this whole area of, of inquiry around that time, some some people would maybe capture it by the phrase of science and technology studies, STS, where we, we, we look at the relationship between knowledge, society, and politics. And, and by that stage, when climate get erupted, In 2009, you know, this was exactly what I was interested in. So in one sense, it was a fascinating case study um, Mm -hmm. to to see the conflation of science, knowledge, politics, and society at work in real time uh, and with, you know, real issues on the stake. I mean, it was a big deal for for six or 12 months. On, On the other hand, it was very close to home. You know, some of the scientists involved, including myself, I mean, some of my emails were in the batch that were released. I knew many of the scientists involved. And it had a big personal toll on on two or three of those in particular, um, but I was interested in studying what, what does this tell us about science and what does this mm-hmm. tell us about the relationship between science and society. So and I wrote you... a, I wrote a few things at the time yeah. about that, trying to make sense and interpret what was going on in in real time, as it were. Um, and for me, it, I mean, it never the issue was never really in, in doubt. You know, this was not you know this was not a conspiracy that the data was being faked or scientists were just completely making it all up. That was never, for me, at stake here. But it did reveal, as it were, science from the inside, the inside uh, narrative of how scientists think, how they communicate with each other, how they do protect, you know, they they protect their networks, they defend their hypotheses, uh, they... And these, these are sort of, as it were, normal social practices. So science,
0: a, scientists are human, essentially. Scientists are human, exactly.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, we need to understand science as a human practice um, and study it as such. Uh, some people think that that's um, a dangerous route to go down, particularly on hot-button topics like climate change or pandemics or, or, or any other number of political issues, but I think you know my argument would be: if we don't understand how science works and the type of knowledge that it produces, we actually lend ourselves to these types of controversies. Because suddenly you puncture the the, the bubble, and 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 people who have a very naive view of science as a pure truth machine, mm-hmm. conducted by robots um, speaking, as it were, from the heavens, truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth. Suddenly. People who think that see these emails and scientists talking in in ways that they may not have anticipated, and suddenly science comes into disrepute. So I think it's important to uh, do a much better job at educating the twists and the turns, the ragged edges, the very social and human dimensions of how science operates.
0: So you did write a book, uh, actually, uh, called Why We Disagree About Climate Change, right? Cambridge University Press 2009. So that was just about that time. Why, You know, in a sentence, why, why do we disagree about climate change? I mean, uh, this this scandal aside, but yeah, this, why, why do we generally yeah. disagree?
1: Well, we, we, we disagree because we have different ways of making sense of the world and how we should act within it. And it touches back not just into science, it touches deeply, much more deeply into things that we value, um, uh, the ways we prefer to be governed, our apprehension of risk and whether we are willing to take uh, greater or lesser risks. These are these are belief-driven or value-driven differences between human cultures. Mm-hmm. And science, yeah, it feeds into all of that, but it does, doesn't have the trump card. It, it, at least for most people, it doesn't have the trump card. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, re- re- revealing the reasons why we disagree for me is a prerequisite to thinking about good strategies for policy intervention.
0: Well, we'll, we'll talk about this uh, in a while. I want to get to the the climate panel uh, uh, for a, for a moment, but you you obviously have written now very recently. You just sent a manuscript to the to the printer, I believe, um, about you know how climate change isn't. It isn't everything. And, and I guess that that comes into play here because we disagree, I guess, because it's clear that some people, whilst they might even at this point see that there is climate change, they find that there are other things that are also important, and, and if, even for you. But let's let's jump to uh, you know, a edited volume that you, you did uh, last year, a critical assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So this is a big Cambridge University edited volume. Uh, which I was browsing through yesterday. And in the introduction, you talk about how these different discourses, the epistemic, this gets a little technical here, uh, diplomatic procedural and communicative discourses come into play with this very important project that's been going on for 30 years, arguably one of the most important scientific uh, projects uh, you know ongoing. Wow. It has had a significant impact certainly on climate change knowledge, but also on the discourse, as you say, on climate change and on policy development. And it was even awarded in 2007, so two years before this controversy we were talking about with the Nobel Peace Prize. And I believe you uh, shared in that as well. So I guess my first question here is, what are the big successes of the uh, climate change uh, intergovernmental panel and what are the big failures? And let's start with some of the successes. Let's start on a positive note here.
1: Oh, well, yeah. So, 30 years, 1988, it was constituted uh, under the mandate of the United Nations to, to marshal you know, what scientists knew about climate change, both the natural factors and the human uh, factors. At a time, this is the late 1980s, when you know science was still emerging. Uh, people apprehended that there was something potentially quite significant going on here, but the science, you know, you know wasn't all pulling or pushing in the same direction. And so, this panel. Uh, I would say certainly for the first two or three cycles, did a very good job at uh, marshalling this evidence, m- mobilising you know key experts around the world, looking at certainties and uncertainties, and producing a balanced judgment uh, on the strength of the evidence that humans really were changing the climate significantly. Hmm. Uh, and that was a, a very valuable role, um, I, I felt, in those first first three cycles up until, say, 2001, probably the third assessment report. Um, it also had a mandate to look at, um, the potential impacts uh, of climate change around the world on different ecosystems and different social systems and begin to open up possible, um, policy, uh, interventions. So what we would call mitigation, trying to reduce the scale of human impact on the climate system, but also adaptation, how best societies might be able to adapt to some of these changes that are coming down the pipeline. Uh, so, so that has been, I mean, it, 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 it certainly had a very key a uh, seminal role actually in 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 bringing that knowledge into focus raising the political awareness of this and uh, through the framework of conventional climate change you know c- creating a, a, a framework within which policy could be deliberated on a on an international scale
0: so you you use the word in the in the book quite a few times about uh, how well first of all you talk about the role of models in these assessments so the the the, the word model is interesting in this uh, sense but you you use the word boundary objects a lot and you say oh. that they serve these models as boundary objects between working groups and as instruments into kind of policy relevance boundary objects of course is a, another STS science technology studies word and it refers to you know I guess. The uh, something that stands in between and can communicate words and concepts that can communicate between wow. different realms and different communities and and uh, and b- bodies of knowledge. I guess. I mean, maybe this is you have a better definition, but but broadly. so what how do you explain, for one, that the models used by this panel are very, very complicated. So how then can they serve as a boundary object? I guess that's wow. just a naive question
1: yeah well m- models so these are these are uh, computer simulation models based in many senses on first principles of physics and how mass uh, moisture and matter move around the, the atmosphere and the oceans uh, uh, represented in mathematical equations in computers and these have become increasingly powerful of course um, orders of magnitude more powerful of course today than they were thirty years ago. Um, and actually the science of climate change in many senses deeply, deeply dependent upon this climate modelling enterprise, being able to create, as it were, artificial climates, artificial worlds, to be able to experiment with what if scenarios or what might happen if emissions of greenhouse gases increases by this amount or by that amount, or indeed, what would the climate of the planet look like if there was no human influence on the climate system? So the models allow scientists to experiment, as it were, in a way that, of course, you can't possibly experiment. With, with the real world uh, on, on climate. You can't create the, the, the physical conditions of climate in, micro, in microcosm. You, you've got to do it in a, in, a, in a simulation model. So they are absolutely central to the way in which science of climate change has evolved and they're absolutely central to the IPCC um
0: but how did they evolve mike because uh, so they are called and and you you talk about this in your book the field of integrated assessment modeling is what it's called i a m about oh. you know a lo- lot of abbreviations obviously but the i a m so these are these are models it's a procedure for the, for for these models how did they emerge i mean was it pretty obvious to this group that was suddenly oh. charged by the un to to write a report that you know you all just converged around some models and you said hey 10 of you go home and do these models because Once you make that choice, right, because this is a a report that keeps coming out, you're sort of stuck with them, so you better make a good choice. How is that choice made?
1: Okay, so just a couple of things, rewind a little. Well before the IPCC, meteorologists and oceanographers have been developing these, uh, what we would call climate models, or maybe these days we would call them Earth system models, um, trying to represent the entire planet. Uh, at the highest possible resolution. So that that venture had begun in the 1960s and by the late 1980s. It had had reached a a modestly mature stage. There were probably about a dozen research labs around the world that were running these models, and the IPCC harnessed them all. What began to be realised, of course, though, is is the whole climate change issue, it, it, it wasn't just about what was happening to the physical climate. It was also about changes that were as it were, coming down the line from human development and energy systems. And, and this is where the integrated assessment models came into play. And they did really coincide with the constitution of the IPCC. So it really was the, the first generation of integrated assessment models around about 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I was involved with, with with one of the very first of these, um, a collaboration for the European Union around 1990. And, and these integrated assessment models wanted to get the best out of the the global climate models, but at the same time, to simulate how energy, society, technology systems evolved because they, of course, would determine the trajectories of greenhouse gas emissions into the future. Mm You know, Was it going to be a low development path or a high development? Was it going to be low carbon, high carbon? What was going to happen to population? These are the social dynamics and economic dynamics. And so these integrated assessment models then, as it were. stakes a much bigger claim to guide people's thinking about how the future, not just of the climate would evolve, but how the whole future of society would evolve. So I, make, find you- that's,
0: I find that really interesting because, also because you, several of your chapters and maybe yourself as well, you do point out that the role of social science uh, insight inside of this climate panel process isn't overly dominant so it, in other words it's you know there's m- m- far fewer social scientists involved in this and and one critique has been that there are very few futurists uh, and oh. scenario planners involved but arguably uh, the IPCC has has kind of developed its own scenario methodology integrated with these models and you know um, oh. what, what do you what do you make of that? I mean, as you said, the, the claims go far beyond the original remit of these weather models.
1: Yes, in many senses they do. And the, the question is how do we, we can construct the smartest climate models that, that we possibly want, um, or that our computing technology or our scientific knowledge gives, gives us the capacity to do, and, and we can simulate them 50, 100, 300, 400 years into the future. But if we wanted to understand how humans are going to shape that climate future, we've got to understand something about human behavior got to understand something about social development, technological change, and you're not going to get that, in my view, some people would disagree about this, but in my view, you're not going to be able to simulate the entire panoply of human uh, actions and behaviours and technologies um, in a a mathematically driven uh, computer model. You're going to have to... Make some assumptions. You're going to have to cut an awful lot of corners. You're going to have to simplify human behavior enormously. You're going to have to leave out a whole swathe of factors that hugely influence uh, f- the future of human development, which is about belief, about value, about meaning, which is what the humanities would do. So, so the IPCC has to somehow engage with this if it's going to make e- even credible um, simulations about how future climate will evolve. And it does so through the integrated assertion models, um, which have, in uh, the view of many social scientists, and certainly in the view of many human, human humanities scholars, a very impoverished understanding of social and human dynamics.
0: Is there is there a way that you can characterize the current understanding? of human dynamics in these models. Like if you were to just describe to a layperson the what sort of model of human behavior is embedded into these various scenarios. And I want you to also, I guess, address this issue of um, um, baseline scenarios and sort of business as usual. That's another, wow. I mean, it's not always a critique. It's, so, it's something of a black box. Wow. So what does this mean here? But there is this notion in, in these panels the, in these reports, about something like a baseline scenario, which in scenario methods usually sort of means that you keep some factors the same, whatever that means. Uh, and then other scenarios kind of go to the more extremes in in uh. the dimensions that you choose to study. But it would seem to me particularly complex when it comes to climate to to talk about a baseline scenario. What well, was that? you know, because you still would have to model some amount of human behavior into it into the very long future.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and so just a couple of examples then of, of some of these variables, uh, you know, one's got to make, what's going to make assumptions about population, you know, global population, how many people are going to be on the planet. You've got to make assumptions about how much they're going to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, high consumption, low consumption, you, you've got to make assumptions about what sort of energy technologies are going to meet the development needs and aspirations of how many people consuming whatever amount of, of goods. Um, So those are just three ones, population, uh, consumption, and uh, energy. And, of course, you can can work with demographers to to look at the different projections of population. You can look at consumption patterns based on historical um, analogs, and you can do some simulation models about the penetration of new technologies, energy technologies, carbon, carbon, low-carbon, high-carbon, nuclear, non-nuclear renewables, and so on. And these are what, in a way, the integrated assessment models are doing, but they're operating at a very ag- aggregate level, um, very often, um, shaped by ana- analogs from the past. So, for example, the rate of, the rate of, the rate of technological innovation, how a new technology penetrates into society is often calibrated <coughs> against how innovative technologies in the 20th century penetrated. You know the speed at the speed of innovation. So you're working uh, very much on analogs, uh, on statistical um, summaries in aggregate. You're not actually, and, and this is where it becomes impossible, you simulate the, the, the multitude of decisions by corporate actors, by individuals, by governments, by dictators like Putin to go to war in Ukraine. You know you're not simulating pandemics that can suddenly throw the, the relevant pathway off track. You know, there's a whole swathe of um, uh, factors that we know will emerge in the future, but we just cannot simulate them or capture them hmm. in a in an integrated assessment model. And so we're then back to looking at, well, what scenarios, what sort of broad brush pictures do we use in order to guide the evolution of future climate in these models? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where your question about baselines and alternatives, you know, really becomes important and the ipcc has gone through or at least i would say four different um uh, generations of thinking really about how scenarios uh should be incorporated uh, into their futuristic uh, assessments um and, and central to all of them in many ways is this whole problem of what is a baseline what is a, a future with A plausible future with no policy interventions against which you can then begin to evaluate the effectiveness of a whole range of policy interventions. You've got to have some baseline. Um, and I think one of the, one of the, um, things that the IPCC has, um, struggled with is to, as it were, allow their baseline scenario to keep pace with the, Speed of human development and technological change over the last thirty years.
0: So the the, it's, the, the problem is almost the opposite. The baseline is too slow, basically. Baseline
1: is, is changing too slowly because the world yeah. is changing too. Not not the climate,
0: but no, the no, world. the rest of the world the rest exactly. Of the world. Yeah. You know, so you
1: know, China uh, over thirty years, you know, the China's economy has grown by an order of magnitude. Um, you know, over those thirty years, we've we've seen um, a, a very substantial. Uh, penetration of new and renewable energy technologies, um, that are now certainly, if you look at solar, it's certainly out competing, uh, at most of the fossil energies. So these, these are, these are just facts that have, 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 happened in the world that have changed the plausibility of your baseline scenario, unless your baseline scenario is very, um, adept at, at keeping, keeping pace and keeping track. And, and it hasn't always. That for the IPCC. So, I mean, without getting too technical, um, one of the very high emissions scenarios in the been in the uh, fifth assessment report, um, you know, had 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 carbon emissions, you know, exceeding 100 gigatons by by 2100. Um, so the so-called RCP 8.5. This was a high emissions baseline, a- and an awful lot of impact Modeling over the last seven or eight years has used this baseline scenario, high emissions baseline, to look at the impacts of climate change. Well, that scenario is just no longer plausible. There's no way the world is going to be emitting 100 gigatons by by 2100, given the um, uh, the, the uh, penetration of renewables um, and, and given in- increases in energy efficiency technologies. So, so there's a there's a there's a an inadvertent bias here that's crept in to an awful lot of impact studies that are yep. simulating the impacts of climate change in the future against a baseline scenario that is no longer plausible. Hmm.
0: Well, so so this kind of brings us to some of the shortcomings, and I wouldn't say failures maybe, but just some of the shortcomings. So Some of the ones that you uh, yourself in various chapters point out, um, they some of them relate to scenarios, right? Uh, it, it is a, a dense way of doing scenarios. If you compare it to futurists who t- who try to write more narrative scenarios, I know there's a whole direction now about trying to introduce more story uh, story based scenarios, and and so there's a controversy there uh, to see if uh, because you know when, when you paint a picture only with statistics. And then you add some spice to the sidelines that it's kind of hard to take in Uh, many many other scenario methods uses a much more narrative approach that's kind of focused on the path there to a plausible future as much as the path to to a statistically possible future uh, um but there's also other things and you know factual errors there's procedural issues although i mean uh, the peer review process around this panel's report is—I uh, mean—almost second to none. There are n- not, not that many scientific reports that goes through this amount of rigor. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'm also sure that there are uh, various types of disagreements. You know, even without rising to the level of a public scandal. I mean, surely, as scientists uh-huh. and humans, you you disagree about things. W- what would you say are some of the shortcomings that that you're trying to address?
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, so you've picked a couple here, I, I, I think, you know, and again, it comes back to one of the early points I made about ClimateGate and the value of a controversy like ClimateGate, was it shone a light inside scientific practice, how does science operate and what sort of knowledge does it make? And in a way, this is one of the reasons why we compiled this edited book about the IPCC was as it were to shine a light on the IPCC. Because the IPCC has now become such a powerful shaper of knowledge and therefore an influencer of politics and um, public discourse, it's important to understand how does the IPCC manage to to do its business. Mm. It's grown hugely over these thirty years um, in in size and in scope, as you said, in the range of peer reviews that it goes through. But it's a very peculiar type of institution in many regards. Um, and that's why we felt it, it. it's important, as I say, to shine a light on it. Um, as it were, we use the metal of the black box. We need to look inside the black box of the IPCC to really understand what's going on. And importantly, and, and you know, sociologists of science, STS scholars, would always say this about science, is to um, identify the hidden or not-so-hidden values that shape scientific practice. And science mm. is, again, is not a an objective, value-free activity. It is deeply human, and if it's deeply human, it's deeply going to reflect the values, at least to some degree, of those individuals or those political masters who are funding science. And mm. this is just as true for the IPCC. Um, uh, and, and that's sort of what these what these chapters um, point point towards. Hmm. It is a it's an intergovernmental uh, panel. It's not independent of governments. Actually, governments own it, and this is why you know the, the final sign off on every IPCC report is actually a sign off by the world's governments. Uh, <clears throat> and, and you have then this very elaborate choreography that goes on in an IPCC report, particularly in the final stages between the scientists and the government representatives, um, in in a way the reports then end up being, as it were, a negotiation between governmental interests uh, and uh, scientific um, uh, credentials Um, and just understanding that intergovernmental character of the IPCC is one important thing, understanding what knowledge is allowable in the IPCC and what knowledge is not allowable. For example, um, the predominant uh, uh, information that is assessed by the IPCC has to be peer-reviewed in the open scientific literature. Mm-hmm. Well, that immediately begins to exclude an awful lot of uh, knowledge, that, let's say, that comes from technical <coughs> communities, that wouldn't end up in, in peer-reviewed scientific journals. And in particular, and this has become a much more sensitive question in the last five years, it excludes an awful lot of indigenous knowledge, um, right. which which is embodied in knowledge holders, in oral tradition um, <coughs> or in place-based uh, communities, but never ends up in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Right. And the IPCC by by design, is, is not eligible to incorporate that sort of knowledge. Uh, and as as it were, this whole question about climate change has penetrated much more widely and deeply around the world. It's mobilized different civic interests, it's particularly mobilized the political uh, activism of Indigenous communities. They quite rightly are asking a question, well, what about our knowledge? Where, where does our knowledge have a home in this dance that goes on between governments and scientists. So, so these are some of the um, facets. I mean, I, you, I, again, I, I think you don't need to call them failings. They're just characteristics of the IPCC that it's important to expose.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. I want to move to the future outlook because, um, well, it's, a, it's the whole reason you're making uh, these reports, I'm assuming. You want to influence the future in a positive way. And and to this point, uh, so you've written this book, "Climate Change Isn't Everything," and I haven't read it, uh, but I saw the little description that you have uh, put out there, and I understand that your position is somehow climate change is one out of many risks. It is not the only risk, and if it is the only risk or becomes construed as the only risk, it somehow constrains us and stops us perhaps from resolving other important issues. Is that a fair characterization of what you're trying to say there?
1: Yes, I think so. Maybe I'll slightly reword it. Uh, um, and you know, you won't have read the book because it's it's not out there yet, it's not published. It will come out uh, around about April or May. But, but the thrust, and maybe there are two thrusts to, to my argument. Um, uh, and I should make clear that in no sense at all is this a book that's challenging the notion that humans are very significantly altering the climate system. It's not It's not in that genre uh, of, of trying to debunk the science of climate change. Well, two things I'm trying to do. One is to point out that there's a real danger of reducing the challenges and the risks of climate change to very, very limited and reductionist in, in indicators. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular of global temperature um, or, or a derivative now of global temperature, which is this whole thing about net zero emissions, which has emerged more or less in the last five or six years. But it, and we use these indicators, so 2 degrees of warming or 1.5 degrees of warming, as though these really are the ways in which if we hit these targets, we will have diffused the risks and dangers and challenges of climate change. So one strand of my argument is to be very, very careful about these forms of reductionist thinking. And I, I, I draw the analogy with um, GDP uh, and, and economic policy. Um, so, so GDP was a particular construction of, of American uh, economic, government economists in the 1930s in the Great Depression um, as a way to try to monitor the effectiveness of Roosevelt's um you know, New Deal GDP. You know, measuring the the, 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 the quantified value of goods and services transacted in an economy has become now the dominant index against which we measure everything. Seems right. in most economies now. So I make this analogy: that global temperature is a bit like this. It, yes, it's very useful. <laughs> it, it, it has its purpose, but it's a very reductionist way of thinking about everything that matters. Just as GDP is a very reductionist way. Yep. So. Caution about this. The other line is more, I think, what you were getting at here, which is about climate change in context. Um, uh, it, we need to understand that just stopping climate change is, I would argue, is not the thing that necessarily matters the most. It certainly, isn't necessarily the thing that matters the most to everybody. Um, and I, you know, I use the example of of this. Um, with the whole idea of solar climate engineering, the idea that there's a technical way of bringing global temperature uh, under human control very, very quickly, which is by spraying the the, the stratosphere with particulates, with aerosols to mimic a volcano. Uh, You could do that. It's not particular. The technology is pretty clear. It's not particularly expensive, very politically contentious, but one could do it. And you could, you could, you could, control global temperature at 2 degrees or 1.75 or 1.5, whatever you wanted, um, just offsetting the warming that greenhouse gases are causing by shielding the planet from incoming solar radiation. Now, that for most people is not an adequate solution to the risks and challenges of climate change because you're leaving just about every other dimension of human social, political, economic development untouched. which and it's those other dimensions that actually make climate dangerous in the first place, you know. It, it, and it's back to sort of my old, you know, some of the early, much earlier work I was doing on climate change and, and, and societies about adaptation. Um, it, you know, climate is dangerous for all regions, for all cultures, for all countries, um, and and finding ways of living with dangerous weather uh, is is something that, generally speaking, humans have been successful to a very large degree more successful in some regions than others um but if you if you reduce the challenge of climate change just to controlling global temperature you'll be, you'll force your way down this path of looking for these silver bullet solutions and you'll leave all these other dimensions that condition the severity of extreme weather on human populations and on ecosystems you leave them all untouched
0: well what i was fascinated by is that you seem to be talking about something that's beyond this whole planetary boundary concept, which, you know, to remind people, this is, uh, you know, the idea that there are several thresholds that are being uh, reached right now and, and carbon this carbon cycle just being one of them. I mean, for one, it reminded me, and I think this point is made in the book as well, that there is a rising kind of new Uh, assessment method for biodiversity and you know we are these days uh, just uh, finished with a big convention uh, I guess COP 15 on biodiversity Um, but you speak beyond just other ecological topics you think that this reductionism can actually hurt society overall so it's a broader argument I mean if we don't resolve diplomacy and poverty and liberty and so yes biodiversity and i wanted to super briefly just comment on this oh. ip uh, bes and whether that is going to come and rise up as a alternative body of knowledge uh you know with the significance of of a climate panel report oh. uh but but then just briefly address this idea that there are many many other issues that oh. seemingly are come on unrelated to ecological issues
1: yeah so i think i mean the, the planetary boundaries framework, you know, is a very um, uh, specific way of thinking about the future. That's driven very much by Earth system science perspectives, very e- e- ecology-driven or physical climate-driven, and, and people have criticised it um, uh, for, for rather ignoring um, what, uh, in fact, Kate, Kate Rayworth, perhaps most famously, has put into play, which is the social floor you know you may have these sort of out of boundaries of, of ecolo- ecological limits for the planet and therefore people talked about the safe operating space for humanity but but rayworth put into play the idea that it, it's not just a safe space you need it's a just one as well and the idea of justice social justice is rather lost in the planetary boundaries framework and this is why maybe beyond the IPBES and the biodiversity framework, I would draw attention, and I do this in the book, to the sustainable development goals, the SDGs that were, in fact, interestingly, they were actually um, agreed by uh, the world's nations in the same year as the Paris Agreement, uh, which put the 1.5 and 2 degree thresholds uh, climate policy into play. But earlier in that that, uh, autumn, The governments had agreed these uh, 17 uh, sustainable development goals Hmm. that every nation signed up to. Uh, And these, these, again, take the much broader view. Yes, uh, climate and energy and biodiversity uh, are part of that mix of 17, but you've also got explicit recognition of poverty, of um, reducing infant mortality, of um, female education, uh, of uh, participation in decision making, uh, of clean water, You know, a much broader set of goals, which in the round, I would argue, capture much more effectively what the majority of people would recognize as constituting a good life. Hmm. And if you reduce that just to this one index of global temperature, or even just the one index of biodiversity, whatever that one index might be, reducing extinction rates by a certain percentage, by a certain date, you've... You've narrowed your field of view to only a very small part of what really, for most people, would, they would recognise as constituting a, a, a good life. So this is this is why I say climate change isn't everything. There are things beyond climate change that matter, and we need to give them due recognition uh, alongside climate and biodiversity as we seek to design effective um equitable climate
0: policies. Mike, this has been fascinating and I have so many more questions, but I'm going to constrain myself here and just end with one very brief one. Are you an optimist on all these questions? Obviously beyond climate, are you an optimist that we're resolving these broader questions for humanity?
1: I I, I would describe myself as a a cautious uh, optimist. I I, I think I'm certainly, you know, to go the other extreme, I'm I very reluctant to endorse some of the more extreme alarmist or doomist narratives uh, that circulate around climate change. Um, and, and I think if you look at human history, if you look at human capacity and capability, if you look at the rate of innovation and a, a technological change, um, and actually if you look at just over the last 30 years at many successes that have been made in order to bend you know, bend the curve of carbon emissions. Yeah, we haven't bent it enough, but the curve has been bent. And in particular, if we also look at the um, mortality rates from weather extremes, I mean, over these last 30 years, or if you go back to my, my childhood, I mean, I can remember cyclones in the Bay of Bengal, you know, would be killing 250, 500,000 people. Um, cyclones today, May kill a thousand, uh, and you can look across the whole range of different weather extremes, and and actually the mortality rates from all of these weather extremes has decreased uh, very substantially. Mm. Um, so I'm am will be a cautious optimist um, mm. in in the way in which I think about the future. Uh, yeah,
0: Mike, I I have more questions. Your book is your your latest book is not out. I'm sure you're working on 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 your next book. Um, I hope that we can revisit this when, when your book comes out. Either way, uh, I'm very thankful for the time that you spent with me today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Thank you. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized too on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized conversations that matter.